Well, good morning, everyone. All right, it is good to be here. Uh, I do like the theme behind us. Norm, you're right. We ought to go with an under the sea kind of a theme. Whoever does that, we can talk to them about getting that done. It's nice to be at this point. Most of you are wearing name tags. Thank you very much. I know it's not just for my benefit, my family, but for everybody. Uh, So if you're visiting, we don't normally wear name tags. So next week, you may not be able to know anybody because we probably won't have name tags. We're not doing name tags next week, are we? Probably not. I should have everyone's name by now. All five, you know, 500, 300. We'll get it down. I am glad to be here. My family is excited about starting this new chapter of ministry in our lives. Uh, Next week, we'll be starting probably a study in one of my favorite books of the Bible. It is the book of Ephesians. I've always wanted to dive into that. It's just a rich book. But I thought it would be important before just jumping into a a book like that, maybe to take a step back. You know, during the process when I was getting to know you and you getting to know me and doing all these meet and greets, questions would always come up. Well, you know, um, well, what's he like? What's he going to change? What's he going to keep together? What's he going to keep the same? Is he ever going to wear a real suit when he preaches? Or is that really an earring in his ear? And I thought it might be good just to do one Sunday and kind of step back and talk about maybe some more macro ideas and concepts. So in order to do that this morning, I want to start with a question. The question is this, what comes to mind when you think of the word church? What comes to mind when you think of the word church? Now, if you're a regular attender, uh, you might say family, a second place like another home for me. If you're a visitor, you might say a nice place to meet new people and get new friends. If you're politically conservative, you might say a place to learn good moral values and citizenship. If you're politically liberal, you might say a great place for social justice and learning compassion for the oppressed. If you're a businessman or woman, you might say a great place to meet new clients and potential customers. Or you might say, you might say, you might say, you might say. Right? As you can see, there are clearly maybe as many answers to their, that question as there are churches in South Orange County. So thinking a little bit together about what is a church is probably an important thing. I mean, after all, we have actually a sign out here when you leave our campus. What does the sign say? Be the church. So we ought to have a good sense of what exactly we intend when we're calling you every Sunday to be the church. It's a very important question. Now, if you're not a Christian, I'll just let you know, you're kind of in on a family conversation right now, but my hope for you is that you get a sense at least what we as Christians hope to be, even if we don't always live up to that ideal. So we want to think a little bit this morning about what is a church? So what is a church anyway? What do they do? Why are there so many of them, right? You've got the uh, seeker-centered churches, you've got the traditionalist churches, you've got the emergent churches, and you've got mega churches, and you've got house churches, and you've got multi-site churches now. And that's just styles of churches. I didn't even mention anything about denominations. So you've got the Anglicans, you've got the Baptists, the Southern Baptists, the General Baptists, the Anabaptists, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Hope Chapel, Calvary Chapel, Assemblies of God, Assemblies of Zion, Assemblies of God in Zion, on and on and on. And that's just the Protestant wing of Christianity, okay? I haven't talked about Orthodox and the Catholic wing. Now, my point in talking about the spectrum of Christianity is not so you go, see, that proves it. Christianity is just so fragmented that this institution actually doesn't work. That's not it at all. As a matter of fact, 
Uh, Lori and I have friends who are either members or pastors in each and every one of these churches. And what I'm constantly amazed at is the wonderful unity amidst all this diversity. So that's what I think we want to spend our time thinking about this morning. What are the things that bind us that constitute what a church actually is, such that when you have these things, you can have it to cash out in any one of the ways I just mentioned. And that's what we want to do this morning. So that's what we're going to do because it's important as Christians to understand what a church is because after all, the New Testament says that a church is vital to your growth. They're saying, what chapter and verse is that? I'll unpack that as time goes on. And if you're not a Christian, understanding what a church is is helpful to understanding what Christians are about, what Christianity is about. So this can be a very important uh, message, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, visiting or not. Especially if you're looking for a church, you should know what you're looking for, right? I mean, you want to make sure your church doesn't just have good music, lots of parking and friendly people and good programs, because that's L.A. Fitness, right? So if your definition of a church is not much different than your def- what you're looking for in a gym, there's a problem. So we got to know what is a church about. So with that, let me ask God to bless the teaching of His Word, and let's jump into it. Father, we thank You that as we've gathered, Your church has been gathering around the globe for the last 24 hours, singing Your praise, lifting hands up to You in worship. Father, we are not just the church here in Laguna Hills at Christ Community Church. We are part of the church, this amazing entity, this amazing body of people that you've called out of this world for your own sake. Lord, give us ears to hear that we might hear from you this morning. Give us hearts willing to obey. We don't want more knowledge. We want to see you and love you more. That's what we pray happens in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you open to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9? There's a lot of verses we can jump to, but we're going to start there. If you're using our Pew Bible, that's page 1015. Uh, just by the way, uh, 1 Peter 2, 9, 2 stands for the chapter, the 9 is a verse. Those little numbers are not footnotes, okay? I just want to let you know. So when you hear 2, 9, what I'm saying is chapter 2 and the ninth verse. So that's just want to make sure that, that you're not confusing those little numbers as footnotes. They're actually verse markers. There are many verses we can look at in the Scripture to talk about who we are, and that's really what we're going to be looking at here. Those are the three things we need to think about, who we are, what we're about, and where we're headed who we are, what we're about, and where we're headed. And who we are are the people of God. And let me just say that this is a high-level overview about uh, the church. As a matter of fact, uh, there isn't a sermon I will preach here, there isn't maybe a ministry endeavor we get in, that won't at some point connect to one of the themes we're talking about. So this is just a very high-level overview. And so of the many verses, I'm just going to camp a little bit on 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Let me read it to you. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We'll stop there, just very short. Peter is writing to Christians living in what's been called the diaspora. This is an area of of the Middle Eastern area that uh, the church had scattered into. These were primarily Gentiles. In other words, they were not Jewish. These were converts to Christianity, and Peter's writing them this letter to encourage them, 
They are suffering persecution. They are trying to figure out who they are, this new people of God, this new trajectory that they are on. What does that mean? And so Peter deliberately uses language right from the Old Testament, for you note takers, from Exodus chapter 19, particularly verse 6, that God had used to, in a sense, identify this nation of Israel. In Exodus 19, the people of Israel had come out of slavery from Egypt, and here they were at Mount Sinai to worship, and God was giving them their identity, letting them know their place in the world. And this was the same terms that God had given the people of Israel that Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is now calling these Gentile Christians. In rapid-fire succession, Peter uses one metaphor after another. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why is Peter doing this? Peter's doing this because he wants to let these Gentile Christians know that they are the people of God, that they, coming from their various backgrounds, are now in Christ, God's new people in the world. Now, we won't look at all four of the metaphors there, but we will look at one or two. Peter says Christians are a holy nation, a community of saints. The word holy there is also translated about 60 different times in the New Testament as the word saint. So as a holy nation, Peter's saying that we were called, they are called to be saints together. Now notice, that's a lifestyle, saint, as well as a context, together, a holy nation. He's giving them a lifestyle and a context. Now, holy doesn't mean, or at least it shouldn't mean, haughty or snobbery, as so often people kind of use that word, oh, you're so holy. No, holy simply means to be set apart, to be set apart. Now, what does that mean for us functionally? What, set apart for God, what, what, how does that, what does that mean for us In simplest terms, when you think of being set apart for God, the New Testament is trying to convey this idea that you are happy about the things that makes God happy and grieved about the things that grieves God. Now, there is so much theology we can build on that, but when you get down to just a functional way of thinking about it, to be set apart for God simply means to be happy about the things that makes Him happy and have your heart broken about the things that break His heart as well. Now, we don't do this, actually, we can't do this by ourselves, though, can we? We need a community of believers, just as God's people did in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, God's people in the New Testament, the church needs a community of believers because we can't do this on our own. Sometimes we won't want to do this on our own, to become more like Christ, become more like God, and we need the encouragement of one another. You see, this is why being involved in a local church is so important. It's not just checking off an attendance box. It's about being in a community of people that together are helping you to be more in practice what God says you already are in position. And so we need the body of Christ. Let me give you a big $10 word here. It's the word edification. It's the word to be built up. It's the word to be growing and sanctified, to be more like Jesus Christ. So when we ask who we are, there's this inward component of being edified, being transformed to be like Jesus in the context of a local body of believers. But there's not just an inward component, is there? There's also an outward component. Notice one of the other titles that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, not just a, a holy nation, but a chosen race. 
See, if you were um, a Gentile God-fearer at that time, all these phrases would have just sent off bells and, and flags in your mind. A, a chosen people, a chosen race. Wait a minute. That's what Israel was supposed to be. Especially in the book of Isaiah, the, 40 chap, the chapters in the 40s, God constantly calls Israel his chosen race. Chosen to do what? Chosen servant to, to testify to the nations around them. What are the ways of God? What's the will and ways of God to the rest of the world? In other words, they were supposed to be evangelistic to all the nations of the world, what God wanted to do, and the nation of Israel was to be a picture of that very thing. And Peter's saying, now, you people, you a holy nation are a chosen race. This idea of this this outward component is seen explicitly in the words of Jesus. You can keep your finger in, in 1 Peter and go to Matthew 28, or if you know this one by heart, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it's one of the last words Jesus gives to the disciples. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So when we ask the question, well, who we are, there's this inward component of helping one another become more like Jesus Christ. There's also an outward component of telling other people about Jesus Christ. But there's also an upward component. And we see that in our same passage. Notice in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, notice that's not just a worship upward component. There are elements of the first two components in there, isn't there? For example, if you don't know what makes God's heart happy and what grieves his heart, how can you proclaim his excellencies? You don't know what those excellencies are. So in order to proclaim his excellencies, there's an implied understanding that you know what those excellencies are. And then there's this, this, this concept of proclaim, getting it out there. So while that's clearly a verse that talks about worshiping him, proclaiming his excellencies, how he's called you from darkness into light, it assumes that you're growing to understand his excellencies and that you're excited to proclaim that very truth. That's really important. If we're just out there telling people about Jesus because we think, well, that's what we're supposed to do, that's what Christians do, but there's not an excitement about it, Not only will that probably be ineffective, but I think people will get a sense that this is just an obligation. And we probably won't represent the Lord well if we're not that excited about him and we're just kind of telling people about him because that's what we think we're supposed to do. So you see, Peter's implying an excitement, a love for God such that you are actually excited to tell people about who he is. Now, it doesn't always turn out the way you want it, but the question you want to ask yourself is, are you cultivating in your life an excitement for the things of God that it kind of just comes out of you? I'm not going to fall off the platform. Don't worry. Some people ask me about that. I know it's here. Is there a kind of an excitement for Christ that builds into you that is just flowing out of you so that you can be what you've been called to be? Now, that doesn't mean, as I said, it always works out. The other week, I was at Costco, and I was praying that day. I said, Lord, I, I really would love to share the gospel. I, I want to have on my radar, more often than not, people around me, because we live in such a busy world, which sometimes it's just my to-do list, and I'm going through life, and I'm forgetting God's always bringing opportunities. So I wanted to say, Lord, 
give me an opportunity. I walked into Costco, and there was this woman, and she was selling, uh, you know, things for cable or something, and she said to me, hey, have you heard the good news? <laughs> so, you know, so immediately, immediately I said, you mean about Jesus dying for my sins so I can have eternal life? <laughs> and I wasn't trying to clobber over the head. I was just really excited about it, and she kind of went, no, there's discount on cable today, 20% <laughs> off. And I just looked at her, I said, and I realized, oh, man, that was a bit too much. I said, well, and I said, well, you know, unless you got something better than what I just said, I'm not really interested. <laughs> I couldn't have a third arm coming out of the back of my head, and she would not have looked at me more struck, like, okay. Now, I don't know if I'd call that evangelism. The point I'm getting at was I want to tell people about the Lord, and it's got to come from a place that I'm genuinely excited to do it because I love his excellencies, and I want to proclaim it. And we want to be those kind of people. And when we say, who are we, the people of God, we've got to have these three components balanced together. We don't want to be a church that's just all on evangelism. We're all about reaching people, because if we're all about reaching people, but we're not edifying ourselves, what are we reaching them for? If we're all about reaching the community, but we don't know what we're reaching them for, we're not going to do a good job. Likewise, if it's all about study and growing and theology and learning, we're not going to be connected to the world outside of us. All these three things are, in a sense, stand, like metrics you can use to say, hey, how am I doing in the things of God? Am I balanced? So not only as a church we ask ourselves, do we have these three components, but as individuals. Am I growing in my understanding of who he is in my own growth? Am I becoming more like him? Am I growing in my boldness or love to tell other people about who Christ is? And am I cultivating a heart of worship? Adam and the team do a great job. Let's not squander that. Am I coming here saying, all right, I'm going to give God praise? So when we ask that question, that's who we are, the people of God, and that's what the people of God are. And we want to have those always before us in balance. Secondly, um, we are living for the glory of God. What are we about? The glory of God. Let me ask a, a huge anthropological question and just reduce it to one word, okay? What is humanity about? Not a rhetorical question. I'm looking for an answer. What's humanity about? And yes, I do have an answer, and that's why you might be not wanting to throw it out there, but let's throw it out there. We had a couple of good ones this morning. What's humanity about? One word. That's two words, but being happy, yes. Together. Community, happy, yeah. Going further, yes, yes. Anyone else? Compassion? Who said that one? Good, good, good. Now, purpose, yes, there's a hand back there. What is it? Say again. Failure. You need encouragement, bro. You guys around him after service, pray for that guy, get him a donut, or at least coffee. All these answers are good. These are good answers. But you, you knew what answer I was going with, right? So I'm going to give it to you anyway. I think this is in the scripture, and we're going to see that. Humanity is about, I heard one last one. What was that? Growth. Growth. Humanity is about, and I think it encompasses most of these, glory. Humanity is about glory. We see it everywhere. We don't often see it done well, right? It's, we see it in the uh, growing by the second NFL touchdown dance. We see men wanting glory. We see it in kids photobombing each other. They want glory. They're getting in other people's photos. After all, what is a selfie if not a little self-glorification? 
right? Hey, check me out. I'm at Disneyland. Hey, check me out. I'm eating pad thai. Hey, check me out. I'm at the beach again, right? What is it? You notice no one ever takes a selfie of them when they're sick in bed with the flu, right? Hey, I look like death. I just threw up. Check me out. Nobody does that. Why? There's no glory in looking like you just threw up. There's no glory in looking like a failure, right? Here's another one. Daydreams. I don't want you to show your hand, just in case. Um, Have you ever been the loser in your daydream? No. What are you in your daydream? The hero. Why? Because you love glory. And your daydream is a way, it is the world that you control, and in the world you control, things work out the way you want it to work out, isn't it? Right? So the armchair quarterback, he's always the guy who catches the winning play, right? The socially awkward person is the only, always the one that, that gets the date with the beautiful person. Because at our core, humanity wants glory. And do you know why? Because the Bible says that's what we were made for. Hold on to that for a second. Isaiah 43, 7, God says, For my people called by name, I created them for my glory. Okay, so there's that theme. You're supposed to give glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether you eat or drink, do all things for the glory. Psalm 24, 10 calls the Lord the King of glory. We love glory because glory is an amazing thing to love. The problem is, sin has turned every one of us into glory thieves. And so the glory that I and you were created to give the only one really glorious, all the glory I no longer give to him, we no longer give it to him, we give it to ourselves, we give it to each other, and we give it to other things. But here's the problem. Ourselves, us, and the things around us cannot bear the weight of that glory. And so when it lets us down, we look for other things to put glory on and hope that will satisfy us because we were built to give glory. And when that lets us down, we go on and on and on. On. By the way, Christians do it as well as non-Christians. All of people were built to give glory. But the only thing that can carry the weight of all of our hopes, expectations, desires, and dreams is the Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty. And the things of this world cannot. I want to read to you a little bit from Somebody you may know, C.S. Lewis, he was an Oxford professor, and he wrote a book on this called The Weight of Glory. Now, he uses the word beauty, um, but what, what, what he's meaning, he's using the concept in the same way, this beauty of, of giving beauty, receiving beauty, the beauty that God gives, the beauty that God infuses into the world is in the same range of meaning as glory in the New Testament. So I just want to clear that up as I read it. So here it is. He writes this, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located, will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, the good images of what we really desire, and what he means, the memory of our own past, he's talking about this, this ache of Eden that all of humanity necessarily feels. We know we live in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be, 
and we don't know what's going on. So that's what Lewis is saying about this, this memory of our own past, humanity's creation in the garden. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Being a Christian, being a church, means the glory we so want for ourselves, we begin to realize and gladly and willingly point it back to Christ. As a matter of fact, you begin to realize that the more God is getting the glory, the more it's for your good. You grow in appreciating the fact that God can be glorified. You want God's name glorified. And the more God is glorified, the more you find yourself satisfied. What a beautiful place to be in because God's the only one that can carry the weight of glory. And the more you're satisfied when he's glorified, guess what? You've got a satisfied life. But to the degree you continue to try and put glory on the things of this world that cannot bear the weight, to that degree you will have a sense of longing that will never be filled. And so to be a church is to be a people who are about the glory of God because that is good and right. Listen to this. Um, this is from uh, theologian Wayne Grudem. This is why, this is just one, one paragraph of a book that's about that thick of how amazing God is and why he is worthy of all glory. Let me just read you a little paragraph from this book. Um, let me get that there. He writes, the difference between the creature and the creator is an immensely vast difference. For God exists in a fundamentally different order of being. It is not just that we exist and God has always existed. It is also that God necessarily exists in an infinitely better, stronger, more excellent way. And listen to these next lines. The difference between God's being and ours is more than the difference between the sun and a candle, more than the difference between the ocean and a raindrop, more than the difference between the Arctic ice cap and a snowflake, more than the difference between the universe and the room we are sitting in. God's being is qualitatively different. You see, did you catch his analogies? All those analogies was analogies of quantity. We tend to think God's just a bigger one of us, right? As a matter of fact, if you're familiar with Mormon theology, in Mormon theology, God is just a bigger one of us. But even as Christians and non-Christians, we tend to think, when you think of God, you probably think of this big outline of somebody. He's just bigger of us. But what Grudem is saying is that we've gotten it wrong. This is not just a qualitative or quantitative difference. This is a qualitative difference in essence. No limitation or imperfection in creation should be projected onto our thought of God. He is the creator all else is creaturely. All else can pass away in an instant. He necessarily exists forever. A church means to be about the glory of God. A Christian means to be about the glory of God. Even if we fail at that, and we will, that is what we mean to be about. The acclaimed English poet uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote in his book, Mortal Beauty, God's Grace, something that was so profound, worth the cost of the book itself. He writes this, All things in creation will bring glory to God, 
But only humans can mean to do this. Let me say that again because that's powerful. He says, all things in creation will bring glory to God, but only humans can mean to do this. In my home, we have a, a two-year-old Bichon Freeze poodle about this big. His name's Napoleon. And Napoleon has helped me worship God so much in the last several weeks as I've been thinking about these concepts. He runs into my room when I'm studying, or he just kind of hangs out in our living room. He comes up to us, and when I see him, I see a God who loves fun, a God with an eye for beauty and symmetry, a God that understands loyalty and fidelity, a God that understands protection and care. And so he comes up to me, and I just hold his little hand, head in my hand, and I say, Napoleon, thank you. You've helped me worship God so much. And he just goes, <laughs> he has no idea that he, being who he is, brings glory to God because he just does it. That's what I just love about creation. Creation just brings glory to God, but human beings can mean to do it. We've got to take advantage of that. Don't squander a moment of your life not meaning to be about the thing that matters most. As a church, let's not squander a moment of our lives together. And, and let's be honest, can we squander things as a church? Uh, you've heard them all, right? We can squander about all kinds of things and miss that we are meant to be about God's glory. And so we want to ask ourselves, what is a church? We are a people of God and we are about the glory of God. I love that. We want to be like uh, the psalmist in Psalm 115 when he said, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be the glory. Not unto us, but to your name be the glory. So we talked a little bit about who we are, the people of God, and there's that inward component, there's an outward component, there's an upward component. We talked about what we're about. We're about God's glory. We get excited about that and we want to see that manifested in our lives in every way. And the last question, where are we going? Where are we headed? Really quick, what's true of long road trips is also true about life. If you uh, want to make sure you take all the right routes, you have to know where you're going. That's true of our Christian life as well. I want to use another kind of word picture from 1 Peter chapter 2. You can look back at that. It's in verse 11. It's just one word that Peter uses. It's the word sojourners. Sojourners. You know what a sojourner is? Somebody that's just passing by. Somebody who's just passing through. Peter also uses the words exiles, which is, it captivates a whole other meaning, but for our purposes now, I want to focus on, Peter uses the word sojourners to tell these Christians, these Gentile Christians, to tell us, you're just passing through. In this life, you are just passing through. Don't set up camp here, right? You ever wonder why the Marines always call their uh, stations camps? Do you know why? Do we have uh, Marines? Ben in here by any chance? Any Marines in here? Why do we call them camps, Richard? Yep. That's why they're called camps, because they're just moving along. Now, Camp Pendleton's been there quite a while, but the point is, the marine mentality was, I'm just a sojourner. We're just moving on. That's why it's just a camp. Paul reinforces the same idea in Philippians 3.20 when he says to the Philippians, look, our citizenship is in heaven. Don't get caught up in the things of this world too much. Our citizenship isn't even here. 
And turn with me to the last book of the Bible. This will be the last verse we look at this morning. Last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. Just go all the way to the right. Can't miss it. Revelation 21 and verse 3. Listen to these words. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be them with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Love that verse. I just, I love, oh man, I'm tempted to go on a tangent here. I got, uh, I'm going on a tangent. I love the fact that one of the last chapters of the Bible, God Almighty, now if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, in these last chapters, he reveals himself as the judge of the universe, and he cleans house. But I love in Revelation 21, this is very intimate. He wipes away every tear. I love that. I love how God, man, he's just brilliant at all these kinds of pictures. Just like John 13 that Joe taught us last week. It said when all authority had been given to him, what did he do? He put on a towel and took the posture of a servant. Did you catch that? It's all throughout the Bible. Here's another one. He lays waste. He judges things. He establishes, makes a new heavens and earth. And when his people come in, he takes a little handkerchief and wipes away every tear. I love that. Okay, that was a tangent. Keep that. That one's for free. The point of why I went to Revelation 21 was the idea of this dwelling place. God says, okay, now the dwelling place of man is with God and the dwelling place of God is with man. You say, well, why is that a big deal? If you know your Bible, you realize that that last verse is very important because really that summarizes all of what the Bible has been trying to teach us. From beginning to end, the Bible is one story of God trying to be with his people. All the way from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when God comes looking for him to the wilderness wandering when God instructs them to build a tabernacle so his presence could be with them, to the monarchy period when God says build a temple so that I might be with my people, all the way and ultimately to Jesus Christ whose name was Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. The Bible is one story about God redeeming his people and wanting to be with us. And this all culminated in the person of Jesus, who was the perfect chosen servant, chosen servant, who perfectly glorified God, and who, because of him, we now have access to the presence of God. So you might say, well, why didn't you make a fourth point and say, well, churches should be about Jesus? And here's why I didn't. Because Jesus is the entire context of this whole thing. He is the exact air we breathe. He is the context of everything. Without Jesus, there would be no people of God. Without Jesus, we would not only not desire the glory of God, we'd have no ability to give him glory. And without Jesus, we'd have no access to him. Everything we do, being the people of God, about the glory of God, in his presence is possible because of Jesus Christ. And it's in the church that we're getting ready for all of this. Notice when Jesus left, what did he leave behind? Political institution? Nope. Educational institution? Uh Uh-uh. No military? Nothing. He left behind the church. He left behind this very ordinary group of men and women to do something extraordinary. 
And that was to become the people of God through him to glorify God and have access to God. So it's in the body of Christ we learn to do these things in very everyday, ordinary things. We extend forgiveness. We receive forgiveness. We encourage growth in Christ. We challenge sin. We're doing this all, all the time for God's greater purposes. Now, it's going to take a lifetime to live that out, isn't it? You've been a Christian for any, time, any length of time. You know very well that it's, you've got as much to grow as you have come this far. But it can start today. As a matter of fact, when you drive out of our parking lot, you'll be reminded of that very fact, that we are the church. Let's be it together for our good and the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you. We know we're not worthy. Lord, to the degree we know we're not worthy, the more excited we come before you. I pray we'd never lose sight of that. Help us, Christ Community Church, to be the kind of people of God that are excited about worshiping in you and growing in you and sharing your name. Help us to be the kind of people that are about your glory. Help us to not be glory thieves, but to be longing to give you glory. And help us to be the kind of people that know we're headed for your presence. May our lives be filled with that kind of confidence and surety. But Lord, we know we can't drum that up. And so even for that knowledge and that excitement and zeal, we ask in your mercy, would you give us that gift as well? And we trust you will in your name. Amen.